Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Just for the helmet! Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, the show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, your best friend, healing from some very big illnesses here in the New Hampshire area. Uh, this show, we talk about fish, fishing, and eating fish. Our show is always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm happy to be here. I'm barely here this week. Uh, as you heard on last week's show, if you didn't listen already, go back and take a listen. Uh, very good show about uh, ice fishing, shack sinking, and all kinds of stuff. I got really sick, and then that sickness kind of blew itself into the flu, and I don't even know how I'm still alive. I felt like I felt like I was dying this week, um, but more importantly, I was dying to get you a show. It's it's Thursday night. I'm gonna have my plans to get the show recorded and get it out to you by tomorrow morning, Friday, so it's nice and fresh because old shows stink. Uh, and I'll get it to you. But here's what's gonna happen on today's show. I'm okay. I'm recovering. I'm about two weeks out from being 100. percent The doctor said my uh, I only have one working lung as it is, and so my respiratory problems are are heavier than what a lot of people deal with. Um, um, so I'm going to have trouble breathing for about two more weeks, but I'm still going to keep making podcasts for you guys because I love you. Uh, so here's what you can expect on today's show. Besides hearing about me complaining about my health, uh, Doc Martin, our chief science correspondent, is here with Dr. Guido, and they're going to discuss a paper called The Pockets of Resistance, Response of an Arid Land Fish Communities to Climate, Hydrology, and Wildfire. Wildfire. So super nerdy show this week. We're glad Doc's here to help us translate science into regular talk. Um, the crappie hippie is here. He's going to bring us some news about fish pirates in Somalia and lots of more fun on today's show. we got a lot coming up for you here. So stay with us on the Fish Nerds Podcast. This episode today is brought to you by the Fish Nerds Guide Service. If you're in New Hampshire and and you want to fish with Fish Nerds, give us a, give us a call, 603-986-4335, and, and we can set up a nice fishing trip uh, for you, and, and uh, we'll have some fun. And if you heard, mentioned that you heard it on the show here, we'll give you $25 off your next fishing trip. And we're actually booking it pretty good for uh, February and March already. So with any luck, we're going to sell out. So if you haven't booked, booked already, you really want to kind of get a move on it here. All right. And so we've been having a lot of fun here on our Facebook group. Um, one of my favorite things about the Fish Nerds is the community we've built. So if you're not already in the Fish Nerds private Facebook group, get in there because that's where you're going to find a lot of the fun we have. Um, this week, for example, Doc Martin's asking a lot of questions about like what kind of stuff should she work on for her science uh, pieces for the Fish Nerds. We got people sharing old commercials like the Wonder Boner. Uh, John King is like the king of surveys and he's asking all kinds of interesting survey questions. Like this week he asked us, you know, should we have, uh, you know, we offer, if you get a hunting license, you need to take a hunter safety course. He asked the question, does, should fisher people take a fisher safety course before getting their fishing licenses? And the responses are tremendous all over the place. 
Uh, and so it's really worth talking about. We also talk about fishing gear. We talk about science. We share funny stories. We tell bad jokes. And uh, this week I had a lot of fun. I posted the question up here and I said to the group, I said, tell us about your pet, but instead of pet, uh, replace your pet, your type of animal is with fishing buddy. And, and I started off by saying, my fishing buddy likes to poop on the ice. And then Matthew Felipe says, my fishing buddy loves to chase squirrels and eat catters. Greg said, my fishing buddy likes it when I rub her chest. That's a good buddy. Rodney Simon says, my fishing buddy is afraid of fish. Gerald, she said, my fishing buddy Munchkin wears a tuxedo all the time. His favorite fish is salmon. Will Harden, my fishing buddy licks my face. That's an odd buddy. David Anthony uh, says, my fishing buddy's... Don't call, don't do cold. John King, crappy hippie, my fishing buddy. I'm gonna try and do my impression. This is John King, crappy headed redneck from Eastern Australia. My fishing buddy swims around wearing golden sequins with poop trailing out of his ass. So, uh, Sandy Gelinas says my fishing buddy begs me for treats every time I go near the kitchen. Jennifer Longworth, my fishing buddy squeals whenever she brings me something from the other room. John Sutter, my fishing buddy likes to open doors around the house at 3 a.m. and headbutt the window when he <coughs> sees birds. Excuse me. Rich Collins, our fly fishing correspondent, my fishing buddy drags her ass along the carpet while paddling her legs to keep the momentum going strong. That's a good buddy. Dave Callum, my fishing buddy humps other fishing buddies. Uh, so does mine. Uh, Doc says, one of my fishing buddies is afraid of water and will only poop in boxes. And my other fishing buddy loves the water and eats the poop from the boxes. Tony Long, my fishing buddy prefers moss to walk on, lives in a cave, and eats nightcrawlers. Hmm. He must have a... I don't know what that is. My fishing buddy was found on a... This is Michael Frank. Was found on a trail along the river, but the best of my knowledge has never been fishing. He'd probably be good at it, though, since he's very persistent and has great reflexes. I wonder what it is. <coughs> Scott Nadaldi, my fishing buddy, takes long naps and eats treats. Olaf... Nelson, my fishing buddy, jumps up and runs away every time she farts, even if it happens when she's asleep. Uh, so that happens to my buddy. Uh, Brian McGilvra, my fishing buddy, Dutch, is always chewing on a bone, and he always lets me know at awkward times when he's got to go. And Charlie McGee, from Bucks Pass and beyond, sometimes my fishing buddy eats the bait. Still, I love him, but the bait farts in the car on the way home are brutal. I, I am sh- I'm sure of it. I have no doubt that's to be a true statement. Uh, we're having a contest going on right now. We're giving away an effing prize package featuring um, some some lead-free lures from Glasswater Angling, a Fish Nerds beanie, some decals, and other fun. And the contest this month, the, um, you just get to call us in, tell us what your biggest fishing disaster is. Call 607-378-FISH and leave us a voicemail and tell us your biggest fishing disaster. And when you do it, this is really important because it's hard to edit these. Do this right. And you'll, and you'll, I'll, I'll send you a decal if you do this right. <coughs> if you do this right. So you call us up, beep, boop, 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 and say, my fishing biggest, say your name. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. My name is Clay Groves. Notice how slowly I said my name. Slow enough where if one were writing it down and trying to spell it, one could possibly do that. Do that. Write it so someone else can spell it. <coughs> My name is Clay Groves. I'm from New Hampshire. My biggest fishing disaster is last week. My ice shack sank through the ice. And then give some details of your story. 
when your story's over, stop talking for like a second. And then very slowly and clearly, as if somebody has to write this down, give us your address so we can mail you a decal. <coughs> Excuse me. And for God's sake, please don't assume I know your zip code. And I'll mail you a decal if you do that for me. I'll be your best friend. I'm a little grouchy about it because I have like, I have a decal going to someone named Alex in San Diego. I don't have his address. I got... A guy named Daryl from some island in Oklahoma, Monkey Island. I don't have a last name. It's really hard to mail things to people if I don't have addresses and names. I can't breathe. 607-378-FISH. Please save my voice. John King, give us some news. News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in Somalia and how fishing, this is fishing in the ocean like commercial fishing, led to piracy and the social pressures and the political ongoings, these patterns that keep repeating themselves. Um, This is what's going on in Somalia as people try to make a living off of the ocean. Um, The thing is, the fishing off Somalia's coast, I guess, is particularly rich. And it's been a tradition for coastal Somalis uh, for a long, long time. Now, the problem is, is that with climate change, more of the Somali nomadic peoples from the interior are moving to the coast and trying to get in on fishing or looking to change their sustenance from herding to fishing. And uh, so there becomes, you know, some pressure there. And what happened, um, you know, a few years ago is that the Somali fishers, you know, fishing is a tough game, commercial fishing. And, and um, what they would do is, is, you know, run people off what they considered Somali waters. Unfortunately, um, these sorts of scuffles and this sort of intimidation and outright encounters uh, escalated. Until, you know, certain groups of these fishermen started figuring out it was much easier to hassle uh, boats full of oil and and other uh, items of merchandise uh, and and um, pirate them and take a ransom there rather than, you know, trying to fight it out over a net full of fish. So that's actually how the whole piracy thing grew to become a luxurious, uh, well, not luxurious, but a, but a real dangerous and uh, ongoing thing in the Somali waters. Uh, so what originally began in a fighting over fishing grounds escalated into this piracy. Now, you know, of course, now that, you know, millions of dollars in merchandise are at stake, you know, other governments are taking notice and, uh, you know, trying to get this situation stopped. Um, more and more Somalis are still trying to transit from herding and the nomadic lifestyle in the interior to a coastal living, and they're still running into lots and lots of problems. So now that national attention is on the area, uh, things are a little different, and we've gone from armed conflict to a domination of another kind. Okay, so one of the problems with fishing in the area is the Somalis are terribly under-equipped compared to their rivals, especially ships from Iran and China. And uh, not only that, um, Somalia is divided into Somalia and Somaliland, 
although not many countries, only like 15 countries recognize Somaliland. So now we have two governments, or a government, a quasi-government, and even though, but both the governments are extremely weak and can't enforce any kind of maritime boundaries. And in the meantime, instead of fighting and having it out on the seas with the fishermen from Somalia, um, the Chinese especially have been going into the government channels and um, greasing the way with whatever amount of cash it takes to uh, get, quote-unquote, permits to be within Somali waters and fish all they want there. So it's a real um, ugly situation, and there's only reason there's any attention on it, of course, is because of the piracy and because of the carrying on now, you know. Like I say, once once the merchandise was threatened, people took notice, and they want to end the piracy, and they want to look at the social factors that are causing it. Um, it's really kind of sad, though, that these people can't just, you know, get their livelihood from the sea and uh, control their own destiny in that way. And to turn around and have your government undercut you by issuing 31 permits to uh, fishers who are going to just take the harvest and take it clear the heck away, uh, you know, to the benefit of basically no one in Somalia, uh, has got to be particularly hard to take. But that's how it goes when nations around the world practice what's called economic imperialism. I mean, you all know good old-fashioned imperialism means we bring in a bunch of soldiers and weapons and kill a bunch of people and then, you know, tell them what they're going to dress like, think like, whatever, and take all their stuff and then maybe leave after they rebel or what have you. Well, it's a lot neater and cleaner nowadays. We just go in and drop money all over the place and basically buy out the people that are in power and uh, from there do whatever we want and that's basically what's going on in Somalia um, people are being paid off to give away the country's uh, resources in terms of fish and these poor people are out on the coast uh, doing their best to make a living and I really feel for them I think uh, before we go writing off countries as third world assholes and saying hey it's all their fault you might want to give a care and think about you know your day in the boat and how that might be different if you were hauling nets all day and uh, facing the fact that some giant ship's going to run you off the grounds and put you on the edge and keep you from getting your uh, justified amount of the resource. But anyhow, um, I uh, found this in all different sorts of sources, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, uh, other places. It's an ongoing story. I'm sorry I did not list the sources out properly, um, but it's really more of a political history and progress type of thing. And it's interesting to me simply because uh, it's about fish and fishing and competing uh, for the resources that we all should be sharing. Anyway, on the plight of Somalia today and the roots of the piracy around Somalia in fishing, this has been Crappie Hippie, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas saying tight lines and valentines. Peace out. Uh, in just a minute, we're going to be coming back uh, from a little break. We're going to take a little break, you little PSA here uh, from Bluefish Radio. And then we're going to come back with with Doc Martin and Doc Guido to hear about the work that they're doing. But I, I thought it might help <laughs> if I can do it. <laughs> I'm Lawrence Gunther, and this is another Bluefish Canada Stewardship Tip. I'm a big fan of live bait when I fish for walleyes, and sometimes I wonder, what am I doing this for? When you're spending 50 cents a minnow, that starts to add up. But it's not just an economic issue. 
it's an invasive issue. When we start to bring minnows and other creatures, we may be introducing disease, we may be introducing invasive species. We have to be super careful that the kinds of animals and critters and, and creatures we're carrying around with us aren't impacting the places we're visiting. You make sure that you're not dumping your live minnows into the lake when you're done. Save them for the next time. Keep a little aerator at home. Do what you have to do, but don't introduce foreign life forms into places you visit. For all the latest Canadian fish and fishing news, follow Bluefish Radio. I thought it might be helpful if I, if I read the abstract so you know what they're talking about, because... They tend to jump in these articles, so we don't know what they're going for here. So, the article is called Pockets of Resistance, Response of an Arid Land Fish of Arid Land Fish Communities to Climate, Hydrology, and Wildlife, published um, in Wiley Freshwater Biology. The abstract disturbing <laughs> I can't breathe. <laughs> I take it back. I'm gonna post the abstract at fishnerds.com. You can read the damn thing yourself. Then you can listen to Doc Martin. If I had more patience, I would do it. You can hear, I can't breathe. I just want to make you a podcast. Is that so wrong? (coughs) 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 Screw it. Here's Doc Martin. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fish Nerds podcast, where me, Doc Martin, gets to interview another nerd about their research. So here I have a super special guest today because... This is the guy that was my PhD advisor and let me have a career in sciences in the first place. So without further ado, I will let him introduce himself. So you want to? Hi, I'm uh, Keith Giddo. I'm a professor of biology at Kansas State University, and I am a fish ecologist slash nerd. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. The the best nerd, the best kind of nerd, right? The fish nerds. <laughs> um, so uh, Keith or Dr. Gitto, I guess, if you'd prefer. <laughs> you can call me Keith. All right. Um, so how did you get to where you are today? Like what was your career trajectory? Yeah, uh, well, it changed over time when, you know, from a uh, high school kid, I just, I've always enjoyed fishing in the outdoors and uh, keeping fish in aquarium. And uh and then that led to an uh, undergraduate education in fisheries and wildlife biology. Um, once I started working for the state agency uh, doing management, fisheries management, uh, I really enjoyed the science side of that. So I got a master's degree in, in, uh, in biology, actually, at the University of New Mexico. And, um, and then I got really interested in ecology in general. Uh, but I always love fish, so so I just applied that to fishes, and um, that encouraged me to pursue a PhD uh, at the University of Oklahoma, uh, looking at, investigating fish ecology, um, and um, did a postdoc, and I was lucky enough to land a, a job at Kansas State University, and um, it's been all uh, downhill from there. <laughs> Oh, yay. That was so, that was, uh, we all and just I feel all rosy my now. Success to my wonderful graduate students, by the way. Oh, yay. <laughs> I'm one of the, so many of them. <laughs> yep. 
Um, okay, so we're actually here. So you've done a lot of research, um, some with me and of course all your other graduate students, um, but we wanted to choose maybe one specific thing that actually does cover quite a bit of the research you've been doing over the years. Um, so you've, uh, I happen to know this because I've helped out in New Mexico, right? And so I'm a little bit more familiar with your research than some of the other folks I've interviewed. And so this is a really nice comprehensive paper kind of overviewing a lot of the work you guys have been doing out there. Um, so let's start with just where that is. So um, we're down in the Gila River, New Mexico. And do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the habitat and the uh, flora and fauna out there? Yeah, well, the, the Gila River, uh, the headwaters of the Gila River, uh, or some of the headwaters uh, begin in New Mexico uh, around Silver City. Um, it's a, it's a great out area because there's a lot of wilderness, uh, big tracts of, of wilderness uh, that is protected land through the U.S. Forest Service, uh, the Aldo Leopold Wilderness and the Gila Wilderness. And so it's a, a very pristine area that there's uh, been uh, relatively few dams, a few very small impoundments, but it, it's a natural flow regime. It, it flows from up in the... the uh, High mountains, maybe uh, Mogollon Peak is probably 10,000, between 10 and 11,000. Uh, down into the desert, uh, uh, it flows in, the Gila River flows down through Arizona and out into the Sea uh, um, uh, of Cortez uh, there uh, in Mexico, below Yuma, Arizona. But um, we mostly work in the, in the headwaters in New Mexico. Um, there's, we don't really work in the cold, cold headwaters where the, there's the Gila trout, which is an endangered species. But just below that, where there's several endangered species and a very threatened fauna, uh, because of all the uh, human modifications that have occurred in the rest of the Colorado River Basin, uh, this is sort of the stronghold for native fish. Um, and so it's been a really uh, uh, interesting area to work and an important area for con conserving many of these species that don't uh, exist or do well elsewhere in the basin. Sure. And so what kind of fishes in general are we talking about? Yeah, so the two, uh, the two federally endangered species uh, that we mo work mostly with are the loach minnow and the spike dace. Um, and they're small fish. They, they don't get much larger than uh, two or three inches. Uh, they, they have fairly short lives, uh, but um, they're beautiful, as are all fish. Um, but there's it's also some other native <laughs> fish there that are, there's some uh, sucker species, a couple sucker species, the desert sucker, the Sonora sucker. There's um, uh, some really cool chub there. Um, there's the headwater chub. Uh, there's the Gila chub, the round-tailed chub. There's a lot of controversy on whether they're different species or not, but they're, they're all really neat uh, fish that are, are a little larger, uh, really fun on the fly rod. Um, um, but then there's also non-natives. So there's, there's a lot of bass and catfish that are, that are not native to the system that uh, can have negative impacts on those native fish. And that's part of the, the challenge of, of working out there or of trying to conserve the native species out there. And so um, you brought up two great things that the fans have actually heard a couple times before. So uh, we did interview Dr. Tobler um, a little while back. And so he talked about kind of evolution and the differences between species. And so when you bring up that, you know, are the species really different species, we've had that conversation before. And so do you happen to know what the, what the key argument is between those two being species or not? I yeah. Think. So, um, 
so a lot of it is just geographic separation. Oh. And so uh, some, like in the uh, in the upper Gila Basin in New Mexico, it's sort of an isolated area uh, compared to the uh, the Verde River, which is also in the Gila River Basin, but it's in central Arizona. And so there's a, there's a lot of space between those. Um, and so there's geographic separation uh, uh, across these, ba- the, within these basins. But also, there's also differences uh, where they occur in the basin. So if they're up in the headwaters versus they're down in the bigger rivers. And the, the argument for them being different species, they look different. So they, 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 uh, there's some physical differences in just their body shape and, and uh, their coloration. Mm-hmm. Um, but the geneticists get in there and they, they find they, they have rules and they find some differences. Um, um, and that's sort of that's why it's controversial is because, you know, how much different does it have to be? And, you know, and in my opinion, it doesn't really uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're unique. All these all these populations are worth con- conserving, whether you call them a species or not. They're they're unique. You know, they have unique genetics. They have unique uh, they have unique uh, uh, characteristics. And so they're all they're all important populations. Well, I'm not going to argue with that. Of course, I'm yeah. a little biased as well. <laughs> sure. yeah. um, great. So now that we know a little bit about the um, geography and the species we're working with, let's kind of get into the details of uh, the study that you've done. And I don't know, would you consider this like a meta-analysis because it kind of takes into account a lot of your previous work? Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, well, we um, we combined two sort of data databases to, to write this paper. Uh, one database, a colleague of mine, David Probst, who was with the New Mexico Game and Fish, began back in the 80s, and he started sampling the Gila River at at particular sites, and and we've been continuing to do that ever since the 80s, the late 80s. So at the time when we wrote the paper, we had 29 years of data, but we now have more. Um, but actually, when I was a an undergrad, I actually helped work on on that uh, project, so it was kind of cool to be be there when he began sampling uh, in the Gila River. But uh, so that's the one database. So we just looked at over time, we looked at the long-term patterns of change and how the fish community changes and and how it responded to extreme events. And and so we highlight the importance of drought and wildfire in this paper. Mm -hmm. And so over over, over almost 30 year record, we, you know, we could see how how the drought impacted the, the fish communities. So you can get these, these big droughts out there. And, and usually when things are dry out West, you get the lightning strike, you get wildfire and that can have um, impacts. Um, then the other study was one that, that you were and Erica were involved in or, and helped with is mm-hmm. it was, was uh, began in 2008 and was about a 10 year study, but it covered a lot more area. And so uh, we were able to look more at, more more different uh, locations and how these impacts because we had a really massive wildfire in that during in 2011 actually there was a series of wildfires between 2011 and 2013 and so that allowed us to look a little closer at the impacts across more locations so you have just one with few locations, but really long-term and yep. another one with lots of locations. So you get that broader spatial scale, but not as long-term. So exactly. you yep. kind of have that. That's, that's a really nice compliment to one another yep. actually. Yep. And 
I have one story that I don't think you know from my work with James um, and Tyler down on the Gila. And I want to share that. And then we'll get back to the paper. Um, we were down. I don't remember which site we were at. Um, but James had the backpack fisher on and Tyler and I were netting. And um, we scared something up. Uh, we were in maybe knee deep water. And um, it hit me in the ankle and we thought it was a really big catfish of some kind because you can get them down there, right? Just really big in those holes. Um, so they're like, you got to get it. You got to, you know, you're all screaming like we got to get this fish because there's, we haven't found anything else. And so we got to get like the one thing we've shocked up, right? So I stick my net down and I catch it and it's like a really big beaver. And I'm not kidding you. James and Tyler both go, and run up on the shore and I'm stuck there with this beaver in my dip net not knowing what to do so there you go <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> it was beaver very exciting like being shocked <laughs> no they uh he was very upset yeah yeah but he swam away he was fine we were all fine it was it was very exciting that's not impressive. a catfish yeah you, you netted a beaver I did um very that briefly I would add yeah. <laughs> okay Anyway, back to the study here. So you kind of looked at um, three different um, variables, the flooding, drought, and fire. Um, mostly kind of focused on, I, I, wouldn't, I don't know if you separated flood and drought per se. You kind of did. Um, yeah. But it's mostly those ex the extremes um, yeah. of those, which would include floods and droughts. Um, and then you looked at that um, with response to just the general habitat characteristics. So is it a main stem? Is it a tributary? Uh, is there more places that these fish can kind of hide and get away um, and survive these um, extreme events? And then you also looked at the magnitude of those events. So how extreme were they? And then you also interestingly looked at how the traits of the fishes might help them respond to some of these um, these extreme events. So uh, let's talk about maybe how you characterized um, flooding, drought, and fire. I know that those things all happen all the time, but I, I saw some graphs here with 90th percentiles and things like that. So you, you kind of parse that apart a little bit. So how did you treat that data? Yeah, well, um, so drought, there's a lot of statistics uh, that like the, the U.S. Geological Survey keeps uh, to quantify uh, how dry things are. It's really important for agriculture and other reasons. And so we use a Palmer drought severity index and it just, it, it, it basically, it, it measures water availability. So it considers how much it rains and, and how much that water is available for probably for plant growth mostly. Um, but anyway, it's a good index of, of, you know, wet and dry years. And, and they actually have a rating system. So positive values mean that it's, it's, it's a, wetter than average year, negative values means it's drier than average year. But these years that these 2011 through 2013, actually 2013 was the driest year on record. Except I think that one was the one with the biggest monsoon season, right? It also had the biggest monsoon. So it had one of the biggest mm -hmm. flows later in the year. Mm -hmm. And so it was really, yeah, it was a really, uh, it makes it very difficult to tease apart what's going, what's really influencing yeah. these. Well, and I mean, that's wild that 2013 was the driest oh wait except for this massive monsoon flood yeah, <laughs> so, flood. yeah, yeah. it was a massive flood i imagine uh, myself being a little fish in that river where it's like man i could really use some water not this much it's too much yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from a uh, fire hydrant right 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 <laughs> exactly so um 
but yeah, so that's, and then the, um, so, so that's how we quantified that. And that's just based on measuring rainfall and in the region and, and uh, temperature and, and evaporation. Um, the, the, the amount of flooding and the, the flows in the river are pretty easy. U.S. Geological Survey has, has gauging stations in, in a lot of streams and rivers, and, and they had one in the Gila River that we used. Um, and then, uh, then we also we also quantified wildfire, and there's there they actually when 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 you have a fire on the landscape, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Forest Service does a pretty good job of of uh, uh, through a geological information system, the GIS. They just they uh, they map the boundaries of those fires or the perimeter of those fires. And, and that um, those data are available. And so we were able to, you know, look at our, our, our locations where we sampled and, and look at the catchment above it and, and determine the percent of that catchment that burned every any given year. Um, and that's important because if you have a lot of area burned and then uh, and the burnings usually happen in the summer and the summer is very predictable, uh, low or no precipitation in the in the southwest the american southwest so when you uh you can go out there in june and and pretty much be guaranteed it's not going to rain but the monsoon season hits later in july and august and so if you have a wildfire in june and that's usually when they occur and then you have that rain event it'll it'll um, all that ash from the fire will get flushed into the stream and that's where the problem occurs with the fish is it can suffocate them and cause poor water quality and can it result in a lot of mortality. Sure. And so um, those are the three variables that you looked at in combination to that habitat, habitat magnitude and fish traits. So um, how can, I guess, the habitat and fish traits maybe make the response to those things better or worse? Yeah. So there's, so the, the fish traits, uh, what we were interested in knowing if uh, large fish, um, or small fish basically would respond differently to these disturbances. And what is and, a large versus a small fish? Can yeah, you give so, us an idea of what that yep. means? Small fish might be something less than, uh, do we use metric or comp three inches or maybe a hundred? Well, whatever you feel, whatever feels right, Keith. <laughs> feels right. Okay, good. Like less than three inches or a hundred millimeters or something like that is a small fish. And they're usually like these endangered fish I was talking about at the beginning of the show there. Um, the large fish can be up to, uh, you know, they can, they can get over 300 or 400 millimeters or maybe, uh, you know, I don't know, more than a foot long. And they, they actually can live a long time. Uh, they, they are really fecund, so they have a lot of eggs. And so you might expect these bigger fish to be better swimmers. They might be able to escape uh, these events. They also might be able to um, just have better physiological tolerance. Um, and so we were curious if, if, the, if the, the size of the fish would, res, would respond uh, or, or change the response. Um, I do have a, quick, also, I have a quick oh, question. Ahead. Sorry. So um, when you talk about the size of the fishes, but from what I recall, the, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of the larger fishes are also non-native. Is that true? Well, it, it's true. There's this, the suckers are the native large fish. Yeah. The, the large non-native fish are the catfish and the smallmouth bass. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're right that a lot of the non-natives are the larger, larger fish. Did you, you did take that into account though, didn't you? Yeah. You did um, native versus non-native. Yes. Yes, we did. So that was another thing that we were also interested in as far as traits go is do the native fish that are adapted to that area. So they, they had an evolutionary history of 
of floods and drought and wildfire, would would they respond uh, more or faster than the non-native fish, uh, which are you know uh, introduced usually from the Mississippi River Basin, or and and they may not have that same evolutionary history or ability to respond. Yeah. All right, and then so how might the habitat uh, characteristics kind of help that out? Yeah, so then with habitat, it depends on where you, it might depend on where you are. So if you're up in the headwaters, so if you're in a small little creek uh, up in the mountains versus if you're downstream in the big, in the big river channel, um, the, the, um, the, the thought there is that the, the smaller creeks, if there's a wildfire in a small creek, it's likely to be really intense but the wildfires are kind of patchy. So the wildfire might not hit all the small creeks, right? So we'd, we'd expect the effect to be really strong in those smaller creeks, the headwaters. Um, but, uh, but there's, there's probably some, uh, it's, it's less likely that they'll be affected because unless it's a really huge wildfire, whereas okay. downstream, no matter uh, what, where that wildfire is, that ash flow, will eventually make its way downstream into the bigger habitats, right? Um, but it will it will potentially be diluted because you have all these streams that join together uh, to form those large uh, streams or rivers. And so by the time the ash gets down there, it's diluted enough that it might not have the same impact. Okay, so there's a couple different factors going on, and it's really just about where those fires really take place and how extensive they are um, yeah. as to whether or not they could be more yeah. intense. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's Sorry. We gotta, that's okay. Uh, got, I didn't put the, I didn't put the sticker on my door. To, don't disturb <laughs> me. <laughs> no worries. Um, so yeah. So basically that's the, um, the location of the fire, uh, the extents, um, how extensive it is, um, and then exactly where it's located will dictate whether maybe it's harsher up in those tributaries or down in the main stem. As yeah. We yeah. do do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you, right? That's right. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds good. That should okay, have been our title. <laughs> that'd be great. All right. So um, what did you find? Okay. So um, basically the body size didn't matter. Um, Interesting. And the whether it was native or non-native didn't matter, but but I but I need to preface this with the fact that those um, we those probably do matter, but what was really overriding of importance is where that fire was. So we had some sites that just got hammered by uh, fire, and they, they uh, the fire burned really intensely. There was a lot of ash on the landscape, so when the when the when the monsoons came in, they just pushed so much ash into the river that it just killed everything indiscriminately. Right? It just didn't matter. Yeah. It didn't matter if you're native, non-native, if you're large, you're small. You didn't do well, and that was sort of the um, the maybe that was sort of the surprising part of it is that we thought that that you know some of these species might have different abilities to contend with those, those disturbances, but it turned out that it was such an dis extreme disturbance that it didn't matter what, what your trait was. So, so, um, so I think those, those factors are uh, body size, native and non-native are probably important factors, but it was hard to determine here. Because and I, yeah. The severity of that, those events. When I noticed that a lot of your models, I mean, it turns out that, um, 
there's a lot of variability in ecological systems. I don't think that's a surprise to any ecologists, but uh, that tends to maybe be surprising to people that aren't in the field. And so it's really hard to know, hey, with all of this variability and all the literal possible factors that are happening in the world at this location, how important are these three, (laughs) right? (laughs) And parsing apart everything else that's going on. And then, you know, so you do what you can. And so just because you didn't find something doesn't mean it isn't important. Yeah. And conversely, if you do find something, you know, what is that relative importance? And that's a really hard thing to balance when you're doing ecological research. Yeah. I mean, if I, I would love to do this again and under a less extreme disturbance to, to really test those. Do you think that's possible in this system? Well, you'd have to be real lucky. I mean, we, we, let me just be clear here. We got very lucky because we started this project. We started uh, sampling these locations before this wildfire happened. So we were able to look at the effects of these wildfires because we had information before it happened and then after it happened. And the only reason we didn't start it beforehand saying, hey, we know in three years there's going to be these massive fires, right? right. We, it was part of another project. And we just got sort of stumbled upon the fact that in the middle of the project, all the fish disappeared and all of a sudden it became a wildfire project instead of a uh, food web project. And so, um, so anyway, it was, uh, you know, somewhat lucky there. So yeah, is it possible? Yeah. But you know, it's hard to predict when these events are going to occur and and the severity of them. Yeah. And I do think one interesting thing that you did find though, is you did look at the time to recover of these ecosystems, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you, I know you looked at just the um, the size, that tributary versus main stem. Did you also look at native versus non-native recovery? We did. You did, yeah. okay. There was, um, yeah, so interesting. So the native fish recovered quite well. It was really interesting. They they came back at uh, most sites. Some sites, they're still, were still waiting. Uh, but for the most part, all the native fish came back. Some of the non-natives came back but some didn't, uh, were slow to recover. So, you know, my, I think there is something there, but it was, you know, it was hard, you know, for statistically to show that that difference, there was, a, there was that, that <laughs> difference between natives and non-natives. Mm-hmm. Um, but there certainly was a difference between the tributaries of the main stem. And so, you know, as predicted, some of those smaller tributary sites, they, they were, the, the disturbance event was much more extreme. And they took a long time to recover. Uh, whereas the main stem sites, which are, the, um, they were maybe the disturbance was less intense, but they're also open. Uh, they have open access to lots of other areas. They recovered quite rapidly. So. Um, and does that go along with what you predicted? What you think, what you thought you would see in the system? It was, yeah. So yeah. that's what we predicted. And it, it has to do with sort of that connectivity so that those downstream sites Anything that survived upstream is real easy for them to recolonize. Just go down. You just float downstream and, and take up home, you know, you know, uh, downstream recolonize. The problem with the, those smaller creeks is, is if, if you get wiped out on those small creeks, it's, uh, it's much harder for a fish to find the way back up into those areas. Yeah, it's, it's easy to go with the flow. Exactly. Go <laughs> with, going with the flow. Yeah. All right. Well, um, is there anything else that uh, you wanted to talk about this paper? Any of the interesting conclusions or are you going to continue on with this? So where are, where is your research going on New Mexico now? Well, this was kind of, we kind of wrapped this up. I think we're going to continue the long-term work at the fewer sites 
we've stopped sampling the intensively uh, the others the, the the large number of sites. But I do think that you know maybe just as a a parting note that you know climate change is happening. It's real, uh, and and these if you look at the long term record of of wildfire and drought, they're they're getting the droughts are getting more extreme and wildfires are getting bigger. And so, I mean, look at Australia right now. I mean, it is up in flames. And, and I think that this type of work is really important because of, because we're seeing more intense wildfires and more intense drought. And that is a really big key into the changing climate is that it's not just that events are happening, right? That there's rain or there's fire or whatever. It's that they're becoming more extreme when they do happen. Yeah, exactly. And so, and that's something that's hard to think about because it's like, well, there's always fires there, right? Because, yeah. and that's true. That would be true. There is fires there. That's a natural part of that ecosystem, but that's something that where maybe the fires were more mild. And so the recovery was easier. So those fishes didn't get displaced as um, intensely. And so they could recover faster, but these are, um, you know, the fires are still happening, but now that they're so extreme, they are indiscriminate, just like you said, and they're just wiping out everything. And so that recovery just takes a longer period of time. And yep. so, you know, and this is just one, you know, it's a big area, but small in the scale of the global climate, right? Yep. But, um, you know, fires are here and there's other things, other places like floods and, you know, other kinds of um, ecological weather patterns, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, and the other, the other important point there is that you need to have areas that aren't affected, or you need to have populations that aren't affected because you have these indiscriminate massive events. And the only way that the fish are able to recover is that you have a, a refugia. Mm -hmm. And, and so this is why we need to conserve large tracts of land and stream area, you know, um, you know, hatcheries play a role sometimes like for the trout. They, you have a wildfire, they'll, they'll take the trout out and hold them in a hatchery until, until the stream water quality, uh, improves and put them back in and it's not what we like to see conservation would be better to just let that work naturally but but there's there's um you know it's it's important to have those refugia populations right especially with you know the gila would be the exception to the rule down in the desert southwest so that it is relatively natural still most places most streams across the united states are not natural anymore so the idea to let it just work itself out because nature always has isn't really a great point anymore because it's not really a natural system and most of them aren't so ideally yeah it'd be great to say well we don't need to do anything nature will be fine it's like well we've we've, we've already kind of done the things so now we have to work on how to fix it and and make it back to what it used to be exactly Yep. Um, okay, so what research are you going to get into now that this project is kind of wrapped up with a bow on it? <laughs> oh, well, actually, we are um, down in the Gila River. What we're doing now is we're uh, implanting these endangered fish, these small fish with uh, microchips, little uh, pit tags. Um, so Even like, the spike dace? Yep. Yeah, they have Ooh, those, the, how the, small the, are those pit tags? Well, they're small. They're eight millimeters. Uh, eight millimeters uh, long and they, awesome. um, you know, the same one you use in your dog that they, they put in the neck of your dog. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they um, we're putting those in these smaller fish and we're trying to figure out their movement. So how, you know, and which has relevance to their ability to respond to disturbances, if they can move out or move back into places. 
And so um, that's building on some work because I remember putting in tags in some of the bigger suckers. Yep. Um, was that with your, was that part of James's work? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's what I thought. And so those were, those were a little bit bigger tags, if I recall. Yep, <laughs> that was so yeah, we're, yeah, but it's really cool. The technology's comes come a long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're putting pit tags in these small fish and we're trying to get an idea of how much they're moving. And, and we're also working with a, there's a native fish hatchery in Arizona and, uh, and, and we're working with them to put, to reintroduce fish that have been raised in the hatchery into the areas where they used to be. And, and we're going to pit tag those fish, those hatchery raised fish to see if they, uh, when you plop them back in the stream, where they go. And so that's our, that's, uh, we're kicking that off this spring. It's going to be cool. Very cool. Um, now, if I were, if I recall correctly, from the larger sucker study, there tended to be kind of these goers and stayers. So there's the fish that will go long distances, and then other fish that will just stay in that one place. Is that what you expect to find with these small fish? It is. That is. Well, we're we're um, the sort of the the hypothesis for any fish is that you have that 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 dual or or um, dual behavior where some some are just Jones in the move. Mm-hmm. And some just are pretty content with where they are. Would you say that that's um, maybe similar to that evolutionary plasticity of the shy, bold um, yeah. dichotomy? Yeah, it is. A lot of people have kind of linked that uh, those together. And do you, so, the, so do you think the the goers would be the bold, and then the stayers would be shy? And so, if you did the shy, the, you did the goers and the stayers. If you took those fish into maybe a more experimental manipulation, and you, you know, you poke at them or whatever to get yeah. the shy bold response, you'd expect that to pretty much parallel. I think you might see that. Yep. Yeah. I'm curious how much that changes over the life of a fish because they may they may just decide to be shy one for a couple months, but then they might decide change their mind. Maybe they had a traumatic experience and they're like, yeah. I'm just going to hang out for a minute. But then, you know, a few months later, they're like, I'm fine. Let's go. Yep. Yeah. And so how long will these uh, pit tags stay in? And like, what's the rate of kind of recovery for these and monitoring them? So they, the pit tags stay in for their life of the fish. They, um, they're, they're, um, yeah, they're, they're, we've got a method down that we don't, there's very little mortality, if any. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, we probably, you know, we put these antennas out. So you put, you have a, a stationary antenna, you drop it in the stream. If you have a place that you're interested in what they move. So a lot of these streams, they have a, uh, they, they built barriers to keep the non-native fish out. And uh, one of the questions is, do these fish go downstream of those barriers? Uh, the idea is that the fish will stay upstream of the barriers and the non-natives will stay out and then they'll do really well. But part of the question is, you know, they, do they move downstream of those barriers? Or do they move up into the tributaries from the main stem, too? Those, that's another question we're trying to tackle. And so you'll have multiple of these kind of in-stream antennas set out to see that movement? Yep. yep. And uh, if the fish swims by it, it'll record the unique number and the date uh, and time and date when that happened. Uh, how many river kilometers about are you covering with this? Uh, it depends on where we are, but it, it could be anywhere from uh, a really small little reach that's uh, uh, maybe 10 kilometers to, the you know, over 100 kilometers. All right. And so some of those little fish, um, based on Josh Perkins' work, we know that little fish can move really far sometimes, surprisingly far sometimes. Yeah. And so um, do you think the, the spike dace or maybe the loach minnow, do you envision one of those maybe being more mobile than the other? 
Uh, that's a good question. The loach minnow lives in the ripples in the rocks. It's uh, it's it's uh, kind of hangs out under in between rocks in the in the spaces between rocks. Uh, you know that I might expect that fish to not move so much. I think they if they find a little home in the rocks, they're probably happy. The spike dace is more. It it uh, is up in the water column in in the pools and shallow runs, and and they're always running around, doing stuff. And they might be a little more mobile. Would be my prediction, but I'm usually wrong. So, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll 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 find out. Cool. And are you gonna? Um, is this a seasonal thing or year round or multiple years or what are you thinking about? We're gonna begin with seasonal because okay. it's it's a lot of effort to maintain those antennas. You got to change batteries out and. So we're just going to try to focus on a season and see how things go. And we might, we might expand that out if we can. All right. Sounds good. Um, any other parting words before we wrap this up? No, thanks for uh, having me on the show and uh, you know, you're doing a great job with everything. <laughs> well, thanks for letting me interview you, Keith. And if uh, the nerds want to find out some more information about your lab, do you have a website or anything you can send them to? Yeah, yeah. The my website's pretty easy to find. You know, name's Keith Gitto. G I D O is the last name. I think if you Google me, there's not too many of us uh, with similar names. So, All right, uh, cool. So well, and I can put that website up um, when our podcast goes, when this episode comes out. I'll make sure that Clay gets the information and so you can click on the episode and then you'll find the link to Keith's website where you can see all of his research if you're more interested in what he's doing. Um, other than that, Keith, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy morning. Is this your second day of the semester as well? No, we, no. we don't start till Tuesday. Oh, well, then I don't feel so bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, have a great start to your spring semester. and I'll right see you there. at KNRC. Sounds great. <laughs> Bye. And we're back. We also had a straggler. We had a straggler calling in about our effing um, New Year's resolution contest. That contest is over. Uh, so you can still keep sending those in, but I'm not sending any more decals out for that contest. But here is our last one. But you can call in for the next contest, which is, your again, your your fishy disasters contest. 607-378-FISH. And here it is. And then we're going to end the show because I can't do this anymore. Hey, Clay. My name is Matt Phillippe. I'm calling from the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. I was listening to the podcast where you had the fishy New Year's resolutions and was reminded that I forgot to call in. Uh, so my New Year's resolution this year is to get a council-wide fishing program up and running in my local Boy Scout council, uh, where I've been working on, started working on that this past year, but uh, this year is going to be the, the year where we really get it, get it going so we can teach a whole bunch of young people how to fish and uh, enjoy fishing in the outdoors and learn and get a lifelong love for the sport. Uh, thanks for all you do. And uh, in the podcast, I love listening to it every time I, I get it. Uh, thanks again. Hello, Fish Nerd Nation. This is Crappie Hippie, and I've got some ways you can help support the fish nerds. First of all, the most direct way to do it is go to patreon.com, look up Fish Nerds, and throw us a few bucks every month. A dollar, a couple dollars, whatever you can afford. Uh, it goes a long way, and it's a big help to us to uh, pay for the little things here and there that add up when making a podcast. It's not cheap to make one, and every penny counts. Um, but if you're like a lot of us, you're saying, hey, I've given all I can give. If it cost a nickel to shiitake, I'd have to throw up. You know, I'm overextended. I'm sorry. I just don't have enough left over for the nerds. That's okay. 
because we'll take your time instead of your dime. First of all, we appreciate the heck out of you listening to the show. So why don't you push on a little further and tell your friends about it. You love listening to it. Take the time to tell a friend or two because word of mouth is the most effective form of advertising a podcast can have. Also, you know what to do, especially those younger folks that don't suffer from AGE like me. But heck, my mom can even do this stuff. Get on your Facebook. Get on your Instagram. Get on that uh, the bird thing, the tweeter, and uh, shout us out wherever you go. Uh, you hear a really good show and you want everybody to know about it, then let them know about it. Take pride in the Fish Nerds because we're proud of you. And also, if you're sitting there playing around with us on the Fish Nerd uh, group page, invite friends. That little invite bar shows up on the side over there. You know there's a friend or two in there that would love to get in on the group. Invite them in. We'd love to have them. Okay, those are some very simple, very straightforward ways you can help support the show. This has been Crappie Hippie. Thanks one and all. So that's it. You've listened to a whole bunch of fish stories when you should have been fishing. Big fat thanks to Doc Martin. Uh, big, big, big thanks to uh, uh, Bluefish Radio. Big thanks to John King, the crappie hippie. Can't thank uh, Diane's bath salts and Wally Pleasant enough for our original original music on this week's show. So until next time, follow the code of the fish nerd. Spawn early. Spawn often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached and swim against the current every chance you get. Uh, I'm going to bed. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Just for the halibut! Fried in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast.